Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altscheller, Chapter Seven: The Messenger, Part Two. He rode on briskly for a full hour, anxiously watching both sides of the road for a cabin or cabin smoke. By that time night had come fully, though fortunately it was clear but very cold. He saw then on the right a faint coil of smoke rising against the dusky sky, and he rode straight for it. The smoke came from a strong double cabin, standing about four hundred yards from the road, and the sight of the heavy log walls made Dick all the more anxious to get inside them. The cold had grown bitter, and even his horse shivered. As he approached, two yellow curs rushed forth and began to bark furiously, snapping at the horse's heels, the usual mountain welcome but when a kick from the horse grazed the ear of one of them, they kept at a respectful distance. "'Hello! Hello!' called Dick loudly. This also was the usual mountain notification that a guest had come, and the heavy board door of the house opened inward. A man, elderly, but dark and strong, with the high cheekbones of an Indian, stood in the door, the light of a fire blazing in the fireplace on the opposite side of the wall throwing him in relief. His hair was coal-black, long and coarse, increasing his resemblance to an Indian. Dick rode close to the door and, without hesitation, asked for a night's shelter and food. This was his inalienable right in the hills or mountains of his state, and he would be a strange man indeed who would refuse it. The man sharply bade the dogs be silent, and they retreated behind the house, their tails drooping. Then he said to Dick, in a tone that was not without hospitality, "'Light, stranger, and we'll put up your horse. Mandy will have supper ready by the time we finish the job.' Dick sprang down gladly, but staggered a little at first from the stiffness of his legs. "'You've rid far, stranger,' said the man, who Dick knew at once had a keen eye and a keen brain. "'And you're young, too.' "'But not younger than many who have gone to the war,' replied Dick. "'In fact, you see many who are not older than fifteen or sixteen. He had spoken hastily and incautiously, and he realized it at once. The man's keen gaze was turned upon him again. "'You've seen the armies, then,' he said. "'Maybe you're a soldier yourself?' "'I've been in the mountains, looking after some land that belongs to my family,' said Dick. "'My name is Mason, Richard Mason, and I live near Pendleton, which is something like a hundred miles from here.' He deemed it best to give his right name, as it would have no significance there. "'You must have seen armies,' persisted the man, "'or you wouldn't have known about so many boys of fifteen or sixteen being in them.' "'I saw both the Federal and Confederate armies in eastern Kentucky. My business took me near them, but I was always glad to get away from them, too.' I hear tell today that there was a big battle. You heard right. It was fought near a little place called Mill Spring, and resulted in a complete victory for the northern forces under General Thomas. That was what I heard. It will be good news to some and bad news to others. Appears to me, Mr. Mason, that you can't fight a battle that will suit everybody. I never heard of one that did. I never will, I reckon. Mighty good horse that you're riding. I never seed one with better shoulders. My name's Leffingwell, Seth Leffingwell, and I live here alone, except in my old woman, Mandy. All we ask of people is to let us be. Lots of us in the mountain feel that way. Let them lowlanders shoot one another up as long as they please, but up here there ain't no slaves, and there ain't nothing else to fight about. The stable was a good one, better than usual in that country. Dick saw stalls for four horses, but no horses. They put his own horse in one of the stalls and gave him corn and hay. Then they walked back to the house, and entered a large room where a stalwart woman of middle age had just finished cooking supper. "'Ooh, but the night's going to be cold,' said Leffingwell as he shut the door behind them, 
and cut off an icy blast. It'll make the fire and supper all the better. We're just plain mountain people, but you're welcome to the best we have. Ma, this is Mr. Mason, who has been on land business in the mountains, and is back on his way to his home at Pendleton. Leffingwell's wife, a powerful woman, as large as her husband, and with a pleasant face, gave Dick a large hand and a friendly grasp. "'It's a good night to be indoors,' she said. "'Supper's ready, Seth. Will you and the stranger set?' She had placed the pine table in the middle of the room, and Dick noticed that it was large enough for five or six persons. He put his saddlebags and blankets in a corner, and he and the man drew up chairs. He had seldom beheld a more cheerful scene. In a great fireplace ten feet wide, big logs roared and crackled. Corn cakes, vegetables, and two kinds of meat were cooking over the coals, and a great pot of coffee boiled and bubbled. No candles had been lighted, but they were not needed. The flames gave sufficient illumination. "'Set, young man,' said Leffingwell heartily, "'and see whose teeth are sharper, yourn or mine.' Dick sat down gladly, and they fell to. The woman alternately waited on them and ate with them. For a time the two masculine human beings ate and drank with so much vigor that there was no time for talk. Leffingwell was the first to break silence. "'I can see you growin', he said. "'Growin'? "'Yes, growin'. You're eatin' so much, you're enjoyin' it so much, and you're digestin' it so fast. You're already taller than you was when you set, and you're broad across the chest. Now I'll take with while to apologize. You've got a right to be hungry, and you mustn't forget Ma's cookin' either. She's never had her beat in all these mountains.' "'Shut up, Seth,' said Mrs. Leffingwell genially. "'You'll make the young stranger think you're plumb foolish, which won't be wide of the mark, either.' "'I'm grateful,' said Dick, falling into the spirit of it. "'But what pains me, Mrs. Leffingwell, is the fact that Mr. Leffingwell will only nibble at your food. "'I don't understand it, as he looks like a healthy man.' would not do for me to be too hearty,' said Leffingwell, "'or I'd keep Mandy here cooking all the time.' They seemed pleasant people to Dick, good, honest mountain types, and he was glad that he had found their house. The room in which they sat was large, apparently used for all purposes, kitchen, dining-room, sitting-room, and bedroom. An old-fashioned squirrel rifle lay on hooks projecting from the wall, but there was no other sign of a weapon. There was a bed at one end of the room, and another at the other, which could be hidden by a rough woolen curtain running on a cord. Dick surmised that this bed would be assigned to him. Their appetites grew lax and finally ceased. Then Leffingwell yawned and stretched his arms. "'Stranger,' he said, we rise early and go to bed early in these parts. There ain't nothing to keep us up in the evenings, and as you've had a hard, long ride, I guess you're just aching for sleep. Dick, although he had been unwilling to say so, was in fact very sleepy. The heavy supper and the heat of the room pulled so hard on his eyelids that he could scarcely keep them up. He murmured his excuses and said he believed he would like to retire. "'Don't you be bashful about saying so,' exclaimed Leffingwell heartily, "'cause I don't think I could keep up more than a half-hour longer.' Mrs. Leffingwell drew the curtain, shutting off one bed and a small space around it. Dick, used to primitive customs, said good night and retired within his alcove, taking his saddlebags. There was a small window near the foot of the room, and when he noticed it he resolved to let in a little air later on. The mountaineers liked hot rooms all the time, but he did not. This window contained no glass, but was closed with a broad shutter. The boy undressed and got into bed, placing his saddlebags on the foot of it and the pistol that he carried in his belt under his head. He fell asleep almost immediately, and had he been asked beforehand he would have said that nothing could awake him before morning. Nevertheless, he awoke before midnight, and it was a very slight thing that caused him to come out of sleep. Despite the languor produced by food and heat, a certain nervous apprehension had been at work in the boy's mind, and it followed him into the unknown regions of sleep. 
His body was dead for a time, and his mind too, but this nervous power worked on, almost independently of him. It had noted the sound of voices nearby, and awakened him, as if he had been shaken by a rough hand. He sat up in his bed and became conscious of a hot and aching head. Then he remembered the window, and softly drawing two pegs that fastened it in order that he might not awaken his good hosts, he opened it inward a few inches. The cold air poured in at the crevice and felt like heaven on his face. His temples quit throbbing and his head ceased to ache. He had not noticed at first the cause that really awakened him, but as he settled back into bed, grateful for the fresh air, the same mysterious power gave him a second warning signal. He heard the hum of voices and sat up again. It was merely the Leffingwells in the bed at the far end of the room, talking. Perhaps he had not been asleep more than an hour, and it was natural that they should lie awake a while, talking about the coming of this young stranger or any other event of the day that interested them. Then he caught a tone or an inflection that he did not remember to have been used by either of the Leffingwells. A third signal of alarm was promptly registered on his brain. He leaned from the bed and, pulling aside the curtain a half an inch or so, looked into the room. The fire had died down except a few coals which cast but a faint light. Yet it was sufficient to show Dick that the two Leffingwells had not gone to bed. They were sitting, fully clothed, before the fireplace, and three other persons were with them. As Dick stared, his eyes grew more used to the half-dusk, and he saw clearly. The three strangers were young men, all armed heavily, and the resemblance of two of them to the Leffingwells was so striking that he had no doubt they were their sons. Now he understood about those empty stalls. The third man, who had been sitting with his shoulder toward Dick, turned his face presently, and the boy with difficulty repressed an exclamation. It was the one who had reined his horse across the road to stop him. A fourth and conclusive signal of alarm was registered upon his brain. He began to dress rapidly and without noise. Meanwhile he listened intently and could hear the words they spoke. The woman was pleading with them to let him go. He was only a harmless lad, and while these were dark days, a crime committed now might yet be punished. "'A harmless boy,' said the strange man. "'He's quick and strong enough, I tell you. "'You should have seen how he rode me down "'and then shot Garmin in the arm.' "'I'd like to have that hoss of his,' said the elder Leffingwell. "'He's the finest brute I ever laid eyes on. "'Such power and such action. "'I noticed him at once when Mason come riding up. "'Suppose we'd just take the hoss and send the boy on.' "'A hoss like that would be knowed,' protested the woman. "'What if soldiers come looking for him?' "'We could run him off in the hills and keep him there a while,' said Leffingwell. "'I know places where soldiers wouldn't find that hoss in a thousand years. "'What do you say to that, Cairns?' "'Good as fur as it goes,' replied Cairns. "'But it don't go fur enough by a long shot. "'The Yanks whipped the Johnnies in a big battle at Mill Spring. "'Me and my partners have been hanging round in the woods, seeing what would happen. "'Now we know that this boy rode straight from the tent of General Thomas himself.' He's a Union soldier, and young as he is, he's an officer. He wouldn't be sent out by General Thomas himself lest it was on big business. He's got messages, dispatches of some kind, that are worth a heap to somebody. With all the armies gathering in the south and west of the state, it stands to reason that them dispatches mean a lot. Now, we've got to get em, and get the full worth of em from them to whom they're worth the most. He's got a pistol, said the elder Leffingwell. I seed it in his belt. If he wakes before we grab him, he'll shoot. The man Karens laughed. "'He'll never get a chance to shoot,' he said. "'Why, after all he went through today, he'll sleep like a log till morning.' "'That's so,' said one of the young Leffingwells. "'And Karens is right. We ought to grab them dispatches. Likely in one way or another we can get a heap for them. "'Shut up, Jim, you fool,' said his mother sharply. "'Do you want murder on your hands? 
Stealing horses is bad enough, but if that boy has got the big dispatches you say he has, and he's missing, don't you think that soldiers will come after him? And they'll trace him to this house. And I tell you that in war trials don't last long. Besides, he's a nice boy, and he spoke nice all the time to Pap and me. But her words did not seem to make any impression upon the others, except her husband, who protested again that it would be enough to take the horse. As for the dispatches, it wasn't wise for them to fool with such things. But Karen's insisted on going the whole route, and the young Leffingwells were with him. Meanwhile, Dick had dressed with more rapidity than ever before in his life, fully alive to the great dangers that threatened. But his fear was greatest lest he might lose the precious dispatches that he bore. For a few moments he did not know what to do. He might take his pistols and fight, but he could not fight them all with success. Then that pleasant flood of cold air gave him the key. While they were still talking, he put his saddlebags over his arm, opened the shutter its full width, and dropped quietly to the ground outside, remembering to take the precaution of closing the shutter behind him, lest the sudden inrush of cold startle the Leffingwells and their friends. It was an icy night, but Dick did not stop to notice it. He ran to the stable, saddled and bridled his horse in two minutes, and in another minute was flying westward over the flinty road, careless whether or not they heard the beat of his horse's hoofs. End of chapter 7, part 2